HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Pico Oysters, turning water into brine on Long Island's North Fork. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all of the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org and likely on whatever podcast uh, app you use to listen to this, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or whatever. iTunes, too. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I would love it if you would leave me a review wherever you found this podcast. This is Heritage Radio's 10th anniversary. We've made it to double digits. It's no easy feat in this fast-moving media world. So we have thousands and thousands of episodes out there for you to listen to forever in the ether. Today's episode number 132 of Feast Your Ears. And uh, I'm a little bit tired today, but I'm well-caffeinated. So I might be talking faster than normal, but just bear with me. Today's theme, spices. In the last 15 years or so, we've seen a real fetishizing of the single ingredient. This is a good thing. Chicken should taste like chicken, not like the breading that's foisted upon it. However, I think we've come to the nadir of that kind of cooking, and while I love the taste and variety we've come to know and understand, I think we're now ripe to return to spice. Spices have had a variety of uses over the millennia, from nutrition to bolstering our health, to adding flavor, preserving foods prone to spoilage, sometimes all of these at the same time. And it is spices that help us recognize and delineate foods from various regions. Spices have been used as currency, paid dowries and ransoms since the earliest days, so why have we forsaken them in recent years? For my part, I have to think it's an extension of the waspy Protestant leaders that this country has had for so long, and we still have at the top. Spices were thought to cause all sorts of problems, when there's much evidence that, in fact, they help us stay healthier. People have been shamed for food over and over again. My mother told stories of being shamed for her chopped liver sandwiches at school in suburban New Jersey in the 1950s. On episode 61 of this show, Elias and Michelle Cairo of Olympia Provisions told the story of their father being called into school in Utah and being told that his children smelled of garlic, they're Greek, and he stood up and told the principal that all the other kids smelled like white bread. 
We had a, the last awakening in this country for spices in the 1960s as our palate expanded and magazines like Gourmet pushed us to try foreign foods that weren't from Europe. And then the hippies started cooking with more and more of spices from the East. We now stand on the cusp of a new era with our worldwide network of shipping and logistics. We don't need to wait months or even years for spices to make it from where they're grown to where we might buy them and use them. Google Translate allows travelers to ask and learn about things in small regions all over the world that we'd otherwise have to guess about. My guest today is Ethan Frisch of Burlap and Barrel Spices. He's taking spice sourcing to the logical next step of transparency and single origins we've come to expect in things like coffee and meat. He's also the host of Why Food right here on Heritage Radio, and you should go check that out. You won't be disappointed. Thanks, Ethan, for coming in the studio to join me. Thanks, Harry. That was an incredible introduction. I, I can go home now, I think. Uh, <laughs> our, our job is done. Oh, I don't know. You I've got a lot of other questions and, for you. Uh, <laughs> um, how did you get into spices? Uh, so it's sort of a circuitous route, as I think is the case for most people working in food. Um, well, I, that's what your whole show is about. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly right. That's what my show is about. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I had worked in, uh, for a political foundation right out of college and, and got laid off in the financial crisis. I'd been a, a history and political science major. Um, and when I found myself without a job trying to figure out what to do next, um, I had always loved to cook. And so I tried to, to get a job in a restaurant kitchen, which uh, wound up being a little harder than I thought. I mean, I had no experience. I don't know what I was expecting, but <laughs> I wound up um, working at a place called Allen and Delancey on the Lower East Side, which at one point was a very good restaurant. Uh, they had a, a Michelin star, which I think they had lost by the time I got there. Um, and just sort of worked my way up through through the restaurant kitchen. I got screamed at a lot, as, as one does in restaurant kitchens, uh, especially when you have no idea what you're doing. Right. Um, Eventually, I was promoted to pastry chef right before the restaurant closed, and uh, I had been making a lot of ice cream there. So I worked at I worked at another restaurant for a little while after that, uh, a place called Tabla, Danny oh, Meyer, yeah. Floyd yep. Cardo's restaurant. Actually, one of the places where I really learned to cook with spices. Um, and then I started an ice cream company, an activist ice cream cart. This is all a long, long way of saying that I threw the ice cream cart, uh, then went back to grad school for international development, moved to Afghanistan where I worked for a big nonprofit started smuggling cumin home in duffel bags, uh, this wild variety of cumin that grows in the mountains in Afghanistan. I assume that's easier than smuggling other things from Afghanistan? Uh, easier and, and less risky, <laughs> right. I think. Uh, the penalties are less severe. Actually, sure. I, I thought I was smuggling, and it turns out I wasn't right. really. You were it's, just carrying it, it. I was just carrying it. Yeah. It's, it's legal to bring right. it. But, um, but it sounds more like more fun if I... Uh, if I and I, I did legitimately think... I was also bringing in... Uh, you know, I was bringing suitcases home full of um, <laughs> dried fruit and honey and uh, nuts. There are all kinds of incredible almonds and pistachios. Uh, that I mean, there's a reason that that's like the where civilization yeah. was born, right? Yeah, that yeah. Part of the world. Exactly. And, and especially Afghanistan in particular, having been a major trading hub on the Silk Road and, and a place that every major army for thousands of years passed through, um, there were the things that were native there and the things that were introduced there. But so much of the food that we take for granted as part of every cuisine in the world, carrots are native to Central Asia, apples uh, are native to Central right, Asia. Right. Um, there was an article, I think it was in the New Yorker, I don't know, eight or ten years ago, yeah. about apples. Finding the original apple, yeah. right, exactly. Um, and so partially because of that history, you just see a lot of varieties of those foods in in the places that those foods are native to than, than you do here. 
Um, so, I mean, they're carrots in, in a dozen different colors that until recently, now they become trendy, you know, purple, right. uh, purple carrots and yellow carrots and whatever, but that wasn't a thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, we still, I mean, I think, I think that we still exist certainly in this country and probably in most of the, I guess what we would call the first world or like the developed world with this idea that a carrot is a singular object or a potato is a singular yeah, object, exactly. right? That you close your eyes and somebody says, what's an eggplant look like? And like in your brain, it's one thing, but like you go through a seed catalog and you see that they're, you know, up until, you know, even 100 years ago, people were growing far more varieties than they are now. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I totally lost the thread of your question. Oh, you were, I was asking how you got into, <laughs> oh, spices. Got into spices. So you were smuggling cumin so I, and I honey was, and things thought I was back from Afghanistan. Cumin. Right, yeah. and, and sharing them with friends in the industry, the restaurant industry, and and getting a really positive response. Um, and I realized through that process that there were people growing really interesting ingredients around the world and there were people who appreciated those ingredients and those two groups of people had no way to talk to each other. Um, Not to mention the fact that most of the farmers growing spices, especially the, the more esoteric varieties... Uh, were had no access to the international market at all. That the spice the spice market internationally is highly commoditized. It's focused on quantity and standardization. It's not interested in diversity in interesting sure. varieties and in, in different flavors. It's not even spices aren't even graded by flavor. I'm sure we'll get there, but um, spices are. It's really about like is the peppercorn the same diameter as every other peppercorn <laughs> in the lot, and that's what people right. care about. So it really is like a supreme level of being a commodity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Let me so let me ask why were these farmers growing this? I mean, so now, right in the coming at it from the West, coming at it from the food world that exists in America and New York City in 2019. You know, yes, I mentioned looking at a seed catalog because I have one right now. I was looking at the seed catalog, and there's these heirloom varieties, and this is a melon. You know, Sawyer's 1847 or whatever it is that was discovered by somebody and was grown at this one time by a farmer, and we're in a moment where these seeds have been saved and small farms are returning to these varietals. But I'm guessing that what you were finding is that these farmers hadn't like suddenly decided they were going to save this rare wild cumin. It's just what they grew. Yeah. I I mean, the cumin itself grows wild, so it's not not cultivated in the way that a lot of crops are. Uh, But I think Afghanistan wound up being a a really interesting place to encounter this phenomenon for me uh, because... First, because it's so sort of inaccessible to the international trading system. It's landlocked. It's mountainous. The the roads, the other infrastructure is really bad. They've I mean, been at war for like my entire life for a very long time. And so it so in other places, even other similarly inaccessible places, um, there are more established trade routes. There are ways to get things in and out. Which is weird because, as you point out, it was this crossroads on the Silk Road. Right. Historically, it was the place where you should have been able to get everything and move everything right. to and from. Exactly. I think there there have been efforts in the last 10 years, largely funded by the U.S. government, to set some of that up. They call it the New Silk Road. There are all kinds of names for it, but ways to set Afghanistan up to export. But the fact of the matter is that there have not been a lot of formal exports in and out other than opium, which is another story. But right. um, And th- there's been quite a bit of cross-border, kind of person-to-person trading across the borders with Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, things like that. But... Um, Afghan products have not have not really entered, had not, I should say, even a, as recently as five years ago, entered the, the global commodity market. Um, and so people are still growing or harvesting, foraging the same things that they've been growing for a very long time. Um, I lived, I was lucky enough to work for an organization, a Muslim organization in Afghanistan and lived in Kabul in a way that most Americans don't get to live there as a sort of a, a normal person. Mm-hmm. Most Americans in living in Kabul are behind 
layers of walls and guards and moving around in armored vehicles and you can't walk around and it's really it's sort of like a glorified prison uh, but because of the organization that I worked for, I, I had a normal house. I lived in a, a quiet residential neighborhood. I could walk around. I could, now, was like, that grocery dangerous shopping. for you as an American? So, I mean, yes and no. It's dangerous to cross the street in New York City. Sure. Uh, so there's always an element of danger. And, and not to not to um, gloss over the fact that Afghanistan is is an active conflict zone in a lot of ways. But being there, you see patterns that are not as visible from the outside. So, you know, like, don't go to this neighborhood on Fridays. I knew my neighborhood was pretty quiet. I knew my neighbors. I knew the, the greengrocer across the street and the butcher around the corner and, and the, this father and son who owned a spice shop up the block. And so I, uh, you know, I, I built a little network around, around my home. Um, and that's not to say it wasn't dangerous. It's not to say that me as an American, I, I obviously stood out. Right. Um, but, uh, but there are people for whom... <clears throat> living there is, is a lot more dangerous. Right. Um, and, uh, and I was cautious and I, it was a calculated risk and, uh, it's a, it's a complicated, it's a complicated right. situation <laughs> that you try to, I don't know, navigate. Yeah. Um, but this spy shop in particular, I would, I would go in several times a week and, and they had, they would pull out, you know, as soon as I, as soon as they realized that I was really interested in what they, what they had, they would, I would, I would get to taste all kinds of things. They would pull out six jars of coriander, and this is the Afghan coriander from this province, and this is from this province, and this one comes from India, this one comes from Pakistan, and let's smell them all and compare them, and this one's bigger and greener, and this one's smaller and browner, and why is that? And and my rudimentary Farsi trying to have that conversation <laughs> with them. Um, but but really, it was, it, was, it was an incredible learning experience just to realize that spices were a whole category of agricultural ingredients coming from farms, from farmers, from plants, and that wasn't it wasn't something I had ever realized before. Even even having worked at a restaurant like Tabla, where spices were so uh, were so prominent in the cuisine sure. that we were cooking. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you uh, you mentioned all these different varieties. You did a, a very uh, a, a well distributed. People should check it out if they haven't seen it. A video with uh, with Epicurious about spices, and you mentioned in there the the first thing you taste in there is cinnamon, and you talk about these two kinds of cinnamon. And uh, the construct of the video I found very interesting because it was about the price. But you point out that that's not really, it doesn't really, that actually, while one is more expensive and there are reasons for that, it doesn't really matter. They both were of a decent quality, but you'd use them for different things, even though to the American market and the way that they get labeled in the store is cinnamon. Yep. But one had a much, you know, was younger bark and had a different flavor and was lemony and grassier. And one was more bourbon notes and sort of deeper and from older bark and from a different tree, in fact. And that really it's about what do those things taste like? So I want to, I want to move into that. You said that spices earlier are not not graded by flavor, which thinking about it from a global trade perspective, of course that makes sense, right? You need to package these things. You need to put thousands of peppercorns down an assembly line. You can't have them being different sizes, right? Like, God, <laughs> right. God forbid. Right, what would you do if yeah. your peppercorns were different sizes? If you only got 47 in a jar instead of 53, right? These things are, are what, what uh, mass production is concerned with. Um, but that seems so weird because we're talking about something that is flavor in its nature. I mean, the whole point of spices aside from the other things I mentioned in my intro, but like flavor is what we think of when we think of spice. Yeah. Yeah, cinnamon winds up being a really interesting example of that. Uh, the cinnamon stick, the construct, the the ridiculousness of a cinnamon stick 
first of all, why are we calling it a stick? It's tree bark that's been rolled. It's not a stick. Uh, so <laughs> there's that. But then second of all... Well, it's um, a unit of measurement. You get seven <laughs> sticks in a package, right? right? And God forbid you had eight or four. Well, have you, have you ever noticed that every cinnamon stick you've ever had is the same length? Oh, yeah. I assume that the trees are only really short. Exactly. Every tree is seven centimeters long. So there's a standard length for a cinnamon stick. It Uh, is seven centimeters? It is seven centimeters. I mean, it varies country to country, whatever, but that's that's it. But there's a standard. Um, And that's because that's the size of the jar that the stick goes in. It doesn't matter to the farmer. Actually, you know, I was at a, I went to visit a cinnamon cooperative in Indonesia last summer and, uh, and cinnamon comes off the tree in, in sheets, essentially. It's tree bark. They have a special knife with a hook in it that they use to peel peel the bark off, uh, and then it gets rolled sometimes by hand, and it regrows, sometimes right? naturally. You're not peeling it off when the tree dies, or does the tree it die? It varies species okay. to species. So the Ceylon variety, the Cinnamomum verum tree, they're able to cut off individual branches without cutting down the whole tree. The cassia species, the Vietnamese or the Indonesian or the Chinese varieties, they usually have to cut down the whole tree, mm. um, which creates a whole, a whole different agricultural process where... Uh, a high-grade cinnamon will come from a tree that's 20 to 30 years old. And so you have this intergenerational agricultural process where parents are planting trees that their kids are going to harvest wow. 25 or 30 years down the road. Um, and and actually, I mean, this is the other problem with the cinnamon stick. In that case, um, in a very old tree, the, the, the richest bark, the more most intense flavored bark, is going to be the oldest part of the tree, and that'll be the base of the trunk. Um, and that bark is really thick. It's much too thick to roll <laughs> into a sticks, cinnamon stick. Right. And so you wind up when you get a cinnamon stick, especially from a cassia cinnamon tree, you're getting a mediocre quality cinnamon that some f- farmer or factory worker or somewhere along the supply chain has had to take a long sheet of rolled cinnamon bark and cut it into precise seven centimeter segments so that you as the home cook can... I don't know. Does that does the seven centimeters matter to to the home cook? Does it matter to the farmer? No, it's right. a, it's totally irrelevant to everybody right. in the supply chain except the company that that puts it in the jars. Right. Wow. So <laughs> that's that's sort of indicative of the challenge in yeah. the spice supply chain, a- and because consumers don't know anything about where cinnamon comes from, uh, you know, even that it is tree bark. We have this conversation yeah. all the time. We're like, cinnamon is tree bark. I had no idea. Um, for an ingredient that's as ubiquitous as cinnamon is, we should know what kind of plant it comes from. That's absolutely basic. Yeah. And, and that there are different flavor profiles yeah. And, yeah. and different ways to taste it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, you know, it's clear from your experience in Afghanistan with that spice shop that that's something that in places where... Uh, where spices have been prevalent for much longer. I mean, America being such a new, young country. I mean, yes, there are some native spices, right, that, that native peoples used, but we don't continue that tradition particularly now, um, that they know that there are differences. And I assume that they know that you might use the coriander from Pakistan for one dish, and you might use the coriander from a region in Afghanistan for a different dish, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Cinnamon, <laughs> not to keep it banging yeah, yeah, on the yeah, cinnamon yeah. drum, but cinnamon becomes a really good example of that where different species of tree will have very different flavor profiles. And uh, a Ceylon, a, a true cinnamon, quote unquote, um, it, it might be better in savory applications where it's going to blend better with other spices where you'll get a little bit more of the citrusy kind of bright notes at the top. Um, of the flavor profile as opposed to the Vietnamese or the Indonesian cinnamon, which is going to be deeper, spicier, really good, kind of the classic cinnamon roll cinnamon, yeah. which is going to be better in sweet things. Um, likewise, cardamom, we've, we work with a cardamom farmer in Guatemala. Um, 
cardamom is graded by size and by color. Which is not a place that I would think of for cardamom. Like not if you asked me, like where do you think the best cardamom comes from? I don't think of cardamom and Guatemala at all. So again, uh, commoditized crops. Yep. There was a, a wave of German migration to Guatemala in the mid to late 1800s. Uh, Germans planting, uh, growing coffee in Guatemala. Um, and then looking for other crops to grow. And somebody had the idea that uh, maybe cardamom would grow well there. And it turns out they were absolutely right. It grows exceptionally well. But despite having been grown there, it came from India originally. Yeah. Um, despite having been grown there for over 100 years, it has not entered the local cuisine at all. Interesting. So uh, you go to a market in Guatemala. Guatemala is the largest exporter of cardamom in the world. They produce by total volume less than India produces, but India consumes most of it domestically, right. where Guatemala exports all of it. So any cardamom that you've eaten in the U.S., and chances are it was from Guatemala. Most of the cardamom in the Middle East and most of the world outside of India it comes from Guatemala. Wow. And, uh, but it hasn't, it hasn't been picked up. Right by the by by in it hasn't been adopted at all. So going to a market, you can't buy a pound of cardamom. You could buy a ton of cardamom if you wanted, <laughs> uh, but a pound is pretty much impossible. Wow, that's amazing. So this is uh, this is a question that I'm sure you get all the time, and is one that I feel like is one of the few sort of things about spices that that has been around in the in the food media for some time, which is dealing with old spices. Right. I mean, like I go to my in-laws house and they have packages of spices that, you know, the can, the, the tin of the spice, the ground spice is date coded like in the early 80s. Yep. So, I mean, that was ground, I'm sure, long before that and picked long before that. And then it's been sitting in their pantry going through heating and cooling cycles since the early 80s yep. and doesn't really smell like anything. Right. right. Like if it's turmeric, it, you know, it's basically just like sand. Yep. Um, so, you know, but then things like nutmeg or cinnamon that are whole and very hard and very dry, I assume actually do better longer than things that are ground. So can you talk just a little bit for listeners about just some guidelines? Cause obviously it's very different with every single, every single spice yeah. that you might have in your cabinet. So, I mean, uh, we get asked a lot about how to store your spices and my, my kind of snarky answer is always don't store your spices use them <laughs> right um but <laughs> recognizing that not everybody is cooking with all of their spices every day yeah uh, ground spices definitely have a, a short shelf life i mean it's an interesting point I, th I think there's a there's like a an economic aspect to spices that i've thought a lot about which is that like you know, let's say I expect my jar of something I don't use very often. So I am trying to like cardamom. Let's sure. say I don't use cardamom a lot. Let's say I buy the standard size, seven centimeter high jar of cardamom. Right. <laughs> and that, you know, I use it for say a year and then I want to like get rid of it. Um, you know, we have this sense of like, I have to use it all up before I get a new one. And, but the fact is that nobody's going to sell me the 12 pieces that I'm going to use in a year, knowing that I'm going to use those up and go buy more, you have to kind of buy a lot more than you're going to use in a period of time before they go bad. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Again, right. Exactly what you said, the, the standardization of the packing process. Yeah. That's something we're working on. We're guilty of that at Burlap Merrill. Now all of our jars are the same size and, uh, and that's challenging. Oh, there's a lot of reasons for that, though. I mean, but yeah, we're we're working on getting some smaller sizes and connecting those to spices that you're going to use less. Um, but, but then that becomes hard on the shelf because people don't you don't they don't see a thing that's this big, right? Right. I mean, it's the, it's the reason CDs had long boxes in the old days, right? <laughs> so you could see them next to record albums, right? Um, the 
the thing is with supermarket spices, you you missed the boat already. <laughs> okay. It's too late. If 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 they're sitting on a supermarket shelf, they've been there for several months under fluorescent lights, air conditioning and heating and whatever's happening in the supermarket. They sat in a distributor's warehouse for months, several months to a year before that. They sat in another warehouse at the packing facility. They sat uh, in bulk in, on a boat. Uh, you know, the the supply chain for commodity spices that wind up at the supermarket is between two and ten years old. It takes between two and ten years for them to get from the grower to the uh, to the supermarket shelf, and then wow. and then your in laws so hold on to it like for another twenty five years. Jesus. So so you know, like it's not it doesn't matter that much whether you use a year or two years to use them because it's, they're already yeah it's too <laughs> horrible late. right exactly anything any volatile <laughs> compounds anything that was going to evaporate has already evaporated. Right. Um, that said, whole spices definitely stay fresher longer. Uh, there's less surface area, less, less uh, exposure to oxygen that, that causes those volatile oils to evaporate. Um, but in general, I think the, the real challenge around spices or on cooking with spices is that, is that for some reason we don't feel like we can be creative when we cook with spices in the way that we feel like we can be with um, more generally European ingredients, I would say. You're adding more carrots or more yeah, green exactly. beans or less Brussels sprouts exactly. or whatever. Yeah. So like just dump a couple extra cardamom pods into whatever you're making with cardamom and it's not the worst thing. I mean, I don't right. know, like it's only going to make it stronger. It's only going to make yeah. it better. Um, and that's, that's something I think a lot about is how to, how to get people to, to cook more freely with spices, to experiment, to rather than uh, following a specific recipe, trying to, trying to come up with a, you know, a, an Indian recipe to use your cardamom in next time you make pasta sauce or next time you make something that you already like to cook, that you're already comfortable cooking, uh, try it with a different flavor profile, throw something different into the into the mix that time and, and see what happens we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at heritage radio uh when we come back i want to talk about the specific spices that burl up and barrel is sourcing and distributing great This episode is brought to you by Pico Oysters, turning water into brine on Long Island's North Fork. Grown out of Little Peconic Bay, Pico Oysters are the only oysters based out of New Suffolk, New York. Owner, farmer, and avid fisherman Peter Stein founded Pico Oysters in 2016 after leaving a corporate job in business consulting and educational software. It's his love and passion for the area and his farm that makes eating and learning about Picos so enjoyable. Taste one and see for yourself. Learn more at PicoOysters.com. That's P-E-E-K-O Oysters.com. Hey, are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Kathy Irway, and I'm the host of Eat Your Words here on HRN. Every week I sit down with food writers to talk about their newest work, from colorful cookbooks to food memoirs to exposés on the food industry. It's all meaty topic for discussion. You can find Eat Your Words wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. And if you are just tuning in, although you probably listened to this from the beginning because you're probably not listening live, but maybe you are. Uh, my guest today is Ethan Frisch, who is the owner and proprietor of Burlap and Barrel Spices. And uh, we've been talking about spices and where they come from and what they are and that you should use more of them. So, uh, Ethan, I want to 
get to the spices that you're actually sourcing and distributing. Um, and I want to understand sort of the process uh, for that. I mean, some of your spices are well known. Uh, you know, you have a turmeric, uh, and I really appreciate that it is dated. So the turmeric that's available now is from the 2018 harvest. Um, it's really cool that it's so fresh. Turmeric specifically is, you know, being viewed as this like superfood and it's antioxidant and anti-inflammatory if you have it with black pepper, which is another one of your uh, ingredients. Um, (laughs) But you also have, uh, um, you know, some things that are a little more like esoteric or like people might never have heard of, um, like Icelandic kelp. So, you know, tell me a little bit about like your selection and how you source your spices. Yeah. Um, Our selection is fairly random. It's (laughs) the things that I find that I think are cool. Right. Um, I think think you're supposed to call that curated. Oh, yes. Highly curated. Uh, (laughs) No, I mean, they are curated, but also not exhaustive. I think the the default assumption, especially when when you're talking about commodity spice companies, is that you have a list of 10,000 spices and, and you can source anything. And because the commodity market is just sort of moving things in and you're buying them from a bigger distributor and, and we... Uh, kind of proudly can't do that. Um, we don't buy anything mm-hmm. from other importers. We import everything ourselves. We do all of the <laughs> the FDA registrations on behalf of our partner farmers, the food safety testing. We are the importer of record legally on every shipment that comes in that we carry. Um, the the decision about what to source and where to source it from is huge and complicated. Uh, coriander is a good example of this. You know, every country in the world grows coriander, cilantro, basically. Um, it's native to the Middle East, specifically to Egypt and the Levant. Uh, but it's it's entered into pretty much, I mean, name a cuisine. And, and there's a, a variety of coriander, whether it's the seeds in, in a lot of European cooking, whether it's uh, the, the leaves in Thailand or India or Mexico. I mean, it's really, it's, it's global. Um, we decided to source it from a group of farms in Egypt, uh, in a, again, again, this attempt to to reach the source, the right. the heirloom variety, the original coriander, um, and that's not to say that coriander from other places isn't excellent and different. The coriander that we get is very sweet. Somebody smelled it the other day and compared it to Fruit Loops. It's got this <laughs> wow. this kind of citrusy, <laughs> fruity, sweet aroma that I really appreciate. Um, there's great coriander from Bulgaria that's kind of herbal and dark, and and from Turkey. I mean, name a country, but. Um, Ultimately, we have to make a decision, and sometimes we wind up carrying two varieties of the same spice if, if we feel like they're different enough. Um, I'm going to Vietnam next month with my, my business partner, my co-founder, to work on sourcing some cinnamon as a second option uh, beyond the, um, the, the uh, cinnamomum verum that we get from Zanzibar, which is a, a sweet kind of citrusy character compared to the, the spicy bourbon character that you get from Vietnamese cinnamon. They're different enough. Um, and then the more esoteric spices, some of those are, are, I, th- I come across it, think it's a cool ingredient, see if I can make it a thing, share it with some of the chefs that we work with, um, see right, if they'll like put it on their menus. The Icelandic kelp is one that I'm curious about because the other stuff, I mean, turmeric I know and I've used in recipes, pepper I've used in recipes and I know, coriander, cinnamon, you have, uh, you've got chilies, all of those things are things that are familiar to me and I can imagine immediately recipe or not, what I would do with them. The Icelandic kelp is fascinating to me because my experience with seaweed as an ingredient is Japanese. And so I'm very familiar with and comfortable with using it in that style cuisine, but it's what you have is coming from Iceland, not that it's necessarily 
like culinarily related to Icelandic cooking, but I'd love to know more about that ingredient. Yeah, Iceland has a tradition of, of harvesting seaweed and of using it in, in their cuisine for a long time. I mean, Iceland did not have a lot of vegetables, and so where were you going to get your, your greens? You got them from the ocean. Um, I was actually, I went there on vacation uh, two years ago, I, I think as did pretty much everybody else based on <laughs> Facebook. But uh, <laughs> my girlfriend and a couple of friends of ours rented a car and drove around Iceland. And in researching things to do in Iceland, I came across the seaweed harvesting facility. Uh, and I was the only one of the four of us who knew how to drive stick shift. So I was in charge of <laughs> <laughs> directing the car. Uh, so I, I convinced them that we were going to go to this peninsula, kind of remote peninsula <laughs> in the northwest northwest of the country, yeah, uh, where there was a puffin sanctuary and there was all this other... I had kind of, anyway, rounded up to make the... You play. buried the lead. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Oh, and by the way, there's also a seaweed factory. Yeah. So um, we drove up there... Uh, I had tried to get in touch with them beforehand. I don't remember if they had responded, but they weren't, they didn't really know what I was, I don't know. They, so we, we drove up to this uh, processing facility where they, they sent out a big boat with scissors, essentially hors, big horizontal underwater scissors that get dropped down into the ocean to clip the tops off the kelp beds. Uh, the kelp gets connect, collected in nets, uh, dried and, and ground up into flakes or into powder. Um, the whole facility is geothermally powered, so it's carbon neutral except for the boat, maybe. Uh, but in any case, um, it sits on a geothermal vent. Um, and so there's there's these like steam, there's holes in the ground all around it where steam <laughs> right. is, it's like this, this very sort of primeval uh, place. And we knocked on the door of the factory where they where they process it. Uh, I, I don't know, they, they, I don't know what they thought of me, you know, marching in, but I wound up buying a 55 pound sack <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> Um, carrying it home in my suitcase, as I often do, um, you know, as a test run, right? Like, this is a cool ingredient. I thought it tasted yeah. great. It has a real, really interesting uh, coagulant effect. Yeah. Um, so it thickens broths and stews and sauces, things like that. Um, and a great flavor. Um, they, it turns out, had, had really only sold it into industrial um, manufacturers, companies making right. natural ice cream or toothpaste, things where the seaweed gets refined into a agar-agar or carrageenan kind of thing and, and used to thicken natural products. I, th I think I'm the on their only customer using it specifically for culinary That's uses. Awesome. <laughs> um, but it's, it's done great, and it's done great in restaurants. We have... Um, uh, the studio at the Freehand Hotel is making a seaweed butter with it, a salted butter, swapping the seaweed out for salt. Yeah. Um, who else? Uh, there's a, uh, an oyster bar in the East Village, the name of which escapes me at the moment, that's making a mignonette with it for oysters. Cool. Um, and it's done really well on our website, direct-to-consumer. People are, are kind of fascinated by this ingredient and, and this idea that you could swap it out for salt. And that's the way that we wind up thinking about a lot of our spices, and especially the, the esoteric varieties, where you use salt, well, try using seaweed instead. Yeah. Or uh, use bay leaves, try using cinnamon tree leaves instead. They work the same way. You cook with them the same way. They even have a similar character, but there's this, this whole other element, a cinnamon flavor to the leaves um, and a great story behind them about the leaves being byproduct of the cinnamon harvest. You cut a branch off the tree, all of the leaves that were attached to the branch um, get collected, dried, and and packed. Cool, awesome. So uh, we're we're running, we're almost out of time. But <clears throat> I want to know, like, what else do you have in the works? Do you have any spices that like you've been after for a while that are proving hard to find, hard yeah. to get? So star anise, absolutely top of the list, and. Um, I don't know why that one seems to have been so hard, but uh, 
I think it really it grows in a pretty small geographic area. Um, I have I have no idea what the plant that it comes from. So even it's looks a tree, like. okay. and and it's actually the fruit. So on the Makes tree, sense. it's green. I think it starts to turn red as it ripens. I haven't seen it growing personally, but uh, I'm going to Vietnam next month right. primarily to visit star anise farms on the Vietnamese Chinese border. Uh, we're also going to visit some cinnamon farms and um, red cardamom and ginger and lemongrass and other things. But um, yeah, star anise has been at the top of the list for a long time. Um, and, and I get excited about the, the weirder stuff. I brought back uh, this pistachio, this wild pistachio variety from Turkey. And I was there in August called a terebinth pistachio. They're this crazy kind of blue and pink color, the fruit on the outside. Huh. They're really little. They're about the size of a bean. Um, but it's, it's the same genus as pistachio, different species. It grows wild, really, I think, only around this one city in, in southeastern Turkey. Um, and the fruit has this very astringent kind of tannic flavor and then you crunch through the shell, like you would have a shell of a pistachio, and the nut is really sweet and has a very characteristic pistachio flavor. So it's a very complicated uh, flavor profile, but works sort of like a peppercorn. Right. So you know, bringing back small quantities of those things, introducing them to chefs, seeing what the response is like, um, and then making a decision about whether to whether to source those in, in larger volumes. Do you think you would ever uh, branch into spice blends? I mean, I'm thinking so. So I, I wrote that like so my wish lists for oh, yeah, you to like put out there. <laughs> um, a number of years ago, my wife was in Belize and brought back allspice leaves from an allspice tree, sure. and we've used those in like baked beans and yeah. like these like old American recipes where they call for things like allspice and those sort of nutmeg, like warmer spices. Yeah. And the leaves are, they're great. I mean, it, as like a, a substitute or an addition to a bay leaf yep. almost. Um, but she also spent time in Bulgaria and Chubritza is a Bulgarian spice mix that's sort of like za'atar, but not quite the same. Um, I'm not sure what the like traditional inclusions are in it, um, but it's a really great spice blend. Somebody just there. gave me some of that, actually. I was um, I helped around the kitchen at a big an annual event in Brooklyn called the Golden Fest, which mm-hmm. is a Balkan music celebration. Oh, yeah, I missed it this year. Uh, it's, it's great. I, I went last year, and some we were, we were out of town. I love it. It's such a cool event. So so you had my mujadara last year, and you had my a couple of other things. Oh, cool. We try to add new dishes to the menu every year. And this year, one of the other volunteers in the kitchen with me brought some of her own chubritsa, which oh, cool. was, is, is delicious. Well, next year, I'll come and I'll volunteer. Yeah, excellent. Uh, yeah, if anybody else wants to hang out in the kitchen and cook for 5,000 people, you're, you're But welcome. it's the cool... I mean, I, just to, as a slight tangent, for people who don't understand, the Golden Festival, it happens at the Grand Prospect Hall, which if you grew up in New York any time in the last 25 years, you've seen the television commercials for. Our kids, our kids won't because television isn't like that anymore. But the Grand Prospect Hall is in Brooklyn. It is this giant old uh, event it's hall. It's an opera house. Uh, yeah. An old opera house. Um, and the Golden Festival is Balkan... It's a Balkan music festival for two nights over, I mean, like hundreds of bands of drums and horns and traditional stuff from the Balkans and it's dancing and it's music and it's food and it's inc- it, it is incredibly fun. Yeah. Um, so to your question about blends, yeah. we don't do any blends intentionally. We're a single origin spice company primarily sure. and, and uh, we're trying to draw the line from the farmer to the cook. So when you have a blend, it just gets a little bit harder to see that, that connection. We really want to talk about... Um, the differences in different spice varieties within the same, you know, the cinnamon or the coriander or the black pepper, how different black peppers are different rather than saying, just put it in a blend and those, 
and, and then it's about the blend. It's not about the ingredients. So maybe we'll get there eventually. Um, and there are lots of companies making great blends. That's in, in terms of as we build the business, that's, um, sure. that's less of a distinguishing feature for us where we, we, it, for us, we're really focused on the, on the sourcing. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Ethan, for joining me today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you can find more online at burlapandbarrel.com, and you can uh, follow along on Instagram at burlapandbarrel. You got it. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, uh, Smoke Signals, wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment and rate and review the show, and you can reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com and you can follow me on instagram at thefoodballer talk to you next week thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.